So we're tracking through the Gospel of John and we're looking at the seven I am statements that he used to describe who he is and what he has done for us. And these statements, they're not parables where he would say, for example, the kingdom of God is like a pearl or the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. He's using pictures of everyday things that are familiar to us and that we can relate to, but he is saying that he is these things. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And today in John 10, I am the gate. And in this passage, Jesus is responding to the Pharisees because of their disbelief. It's just after he had healed a blind man at the pool at Bethesda. And the Pharisees had heard about this blind man being healed and they were unhappy about it. Firstly, because Jesus did it on the Sabbath and secondly, because Jesus was showing who he was as Messiah. And they took this blind man and they interrogated him. Well, he wasn't blind anymore. They took this man and they interrogated him and they insulted him and they threw him out. And so Jesus heard this and he sought the man out to encourage him, to encourage his faith and to tell him again that he was the Messiah. And some Pharisees overheard Jesus talking to this man. And Jesus knew that they not only wanted to discredit him, but they also wanted to contest his authority. And so he begins by talking about thieves and robbers as a direct reference to the Pharisees who have just mistreated this healed man. It's the thieves who do not enter by the gate, but who steal the sheep by climbing over the walls of the sheep pen. So Jesus is using a very familiar custom in Israel, something that was a common sight and a well-known practice, and that of shepherding sheep. And he uses it to describe who he is, the gate of a sheep pen. And to appreciate what Jesus is saying, we need to understand how shepherding practices were, were done in his day. So there were two types of sheep pens. One was fairly large, possibly even with a thatched roof, but reasonably substantial in its construction. These were permanent structures in towns that were available for shepherds from the surrounding areas and the flocks would be mixed in together. And this first type was communal and it had a gate and it had a watchman. And the second type of pen was much smaller and less substantial. And these were scattered through the fields in the countryside built by the shepherd, usually made of rocks just stacked together to form a wall structure. And shepherds in those days, they didn't have large flocks, not like the Australian sheep stations today. They had a small number of sheep and they stayed with their sheep. They protected them, they, they, they led them to grazing pastures and they protected them from thieves. So these smaller pens, they would have walls tall enough to keep the sheep in but they didn't have a roof and they didn't have a gate. So in fact, the shepherd would sleep in the opening and he would literally become the gate for the sheep. So in this passage in verse one, Jesus begins by talking about thieves who do not enter the gate, but have to jump over the fence. And he begins by referring to the communal sheep pen because in verse three, he refers to the watchman who will only open the gate for the shepherd. Only the shepherd has the authority to enter the sheep pen. So in the towns during the day, or at certain times of the year, a shepherd would come in and leave his flock in the communal 
uh, sheep pen, which was guarded by the watchman, and the watchman knew the shepherds. And this allowed the shepherd to carry out his business in the town while the sheep were still being protected. At the end of the day, or when he needed, the shepherd would go to the communal sheep pen and the watchman would let him in. And this is the first aspect of the story. Jesus has the authority to call his sheep. Jesus is the only one who has authority to call people to eternal life. And this authority of Jesus is very important. And this authority is a bit like our bank accounts. We deposit money in the bank and we are the only ones who have the authority to take that money out. That doesn't mean that thieves or robbers might not try to defraud the bank and get our money, but we are the ones where the authority rests. We are the only ones who can take that money out. So, if you have accepted Jesus as Lord and Saviour in your life, then he is the one who has authority over you. And this means we need to look to Jesus to understand how we are to live and what we are to do. And so as Christians, we look to the Bible, we look to the church, we look to other Christians to work out how we are to spend our life. So let me ask you, who do you give authority to in your life? Is it your friends? Do they influence what you do and how you do it? Is it your spouse or partner? Are they determining how you spend your time? Is it your family? Or is it yourself? Are you deciding how you will spend your time? Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me about authority in this aspect because God has given us people over us who are in authority and he tells us to obey them. We're encouraged to obey our parents, for example, and we're encouraged to obey leaders of our nations, even when they're doing things that seem ungodly because God is the one who calls them to those positions and God will hold those people accountable. And we see the Apostle Paul demonstrating this in Acts 23, 2-6. Paul had been called before the Sanhedrin because he was preaching the gospel and he was quite critical and dismissive of the leader. But when Paul found out that he was the high priest, he immediately repented because he recognised that the position of high priest, although this man was misusing his authority, he recognised the position of high priest was appointed by God. So I'm not talking about outright rebellion against all authority in our lives. I'm talking about who directs us, what motivates you, what calls you to action, because it needs to be Jesus. Now, I suggested that maybe it could be your friends or your partners who are directing you, or maybe you're the one who's deciding. And there's nothing particularly wrong about that, but we need to be careful that these influences don't substitute for what God wants us to do. So let me give you an example. There's an American evangelist who has a healing ministry, and he once gave this testimony. He travels the world healing people, of all sorts of diseases, and he absolutely recognises that it is the power of God. He doesn't take any of the glory for himself. He's a very humble man in that respect. One day, he was at a conference, speaking, and then healing the people who had come down the front. And at the end of the day, he went back to his hotel room, and he was very tired, and he thought he'd have an early night. The phone rang, and it was a woman, and she was quite distressed. 
she asked him to come and pray for her son who was in a coma. He resisted at first because he was so tired, but she begged and so he went. He prayed over the boy and the boy was healed. He immediately came out of the coma and he sat up. And the American healer, he gave all the glory to God. Now the hospital was a bit of a distance from the hotel, so by the time he got back, he was very tired, it was late, and he had an early start. And he was angry. He was angry at God because he said to him, I've been serving you all day long at the conference, I've been healing all these people for you, I'm giving you all the glory, why couldn't I simply have an early night? I don't think that's too much to ask. And he heard God say back to him, did I ask you to go? And the man just burst into tears and he realised he hadn't asked God whether he wanted him to go or not. He simply assumed that because he had the gift of healing and because the woman was in need, he simply assumed that he had to go and he forgot to ask God for direction. When God gives us a gift or a talent or a deep desire to serve or some service in the church, we can get so caught up in using that gift or talent or service that we forget to ask God how to use it, how he wants us to use it. And I think it's a really easy trap for all of us to fall into. We think we're serving God, we think we're being faithful, we're serving the church, the body of the Christ, or missions, but we forget to involve God. And it's a subtle way that we take back control from God. We take back the authority. We begin to decide how and when we use the gifts that God has given us. We need to just have quick prayers. What do you want me to do now, Lord? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to say? And in this way, we keep recognising that Jesus is our shepherd, that he is the one who tells us when to go, when to stay, when to talk, when to be silent. And in this way, we give Jesus the true authority over our lives because he is the only one who has the true authority, no one else and not us. And we need to surrender our lives to his authority. So when Jesus refers to himself as a shepherd who enters the gate with authority, he also says in verse 4 that he calls his sheep and his sheep know his voice. It's only his sheep who will follow him out of the sheep pen. So we are living in a world where there are many sheep, people who believe in Jesus, some people who are not sure about Jesus, and some people who just outright reject Jesus as Lord and Saviour. But in this story, Jesus is clearly saying that he is the only one who has authority to call people to follow him. And his people, we know his voice. But the story isn't finished there. Because the people listening to Jesus did not understand what he was saying. So he goes on in verse 7 to say that he is the gate. So this is a bold statement. And Jesus makes it clear that he's not simply a gate, but the gate. And in this statement, he's talking about the smaller sheep pen, not the communal one that had the watchman, but the smaller sheep pen in the countryside that didn't have a gate. 
The shepherd would lead the sheep into the pen through the small opening in the wall and then he would stand guard in that opening, even sleeping there, so that no sheep could wander out and no enemies could wander in. The shepherd was literally the gate. And this picture means two things for us. Firstly, Jesus is the only way into the sheepfold, the only way to eternal life. And this is an unmistakable direct claim that the only way to have a relationship with Father God is through Jesus Christ. So for those people and those religions that say that Jesus was a good man or that he was a good moral teacher or that he was a prophet but not the Son of God, these words of Jesus are undeniable. And these words separate Christianity from all other religions. And in Sydney today, in particular, there's a strange mix of Eastern religions that you'll come across. It's a combination of Buddhism and Hinduism and a bit of Taoism that believes in reincarnation, in karma, in peace and tranquility through meditation, and in the idea that all roads lead to God. And I think that's very comforting for a lot of people because it means that you can ignore Jesus and you can ignore his claim because any road will lead to God. And the exclusiveness of Christianity is seen as an offensive way of thinking. It's seen as being backward, as being narrow-minded, intolerant and bigoted. But it's undeniable. This is what Jesus says. He makes it clear. He's the only way to enter heaven. He is the gate. And yes, that does mean that we need to believe in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And throughout the course of our lives, we may well encounter many gates. Gates that seem to be open for us. It could be a gate to financial security. It could be a gate to pleasure. A gate to gain. A gate to position or recognition. And some of those gates may seem like good opportunities for us. But... They can be gates that lead us away from God. There's only one gate to life. The invitation is open to everyone, but there's only one gate. And the second point is that there are so many benefits that can be enjoyed by being one of Jesus' sheep. Anyone who lives in relationship with Jesus will be able to enjoy his shepherding being able to come into shelter, to enjoy green pastures, being protected from enemies and to have a life to the full. And this is where Jesus says those famous words in John 10.10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And in this, Jesus means eternal life. And we can tend to think that that begins after we die, but it doesn't. It begins the moment we accept Jesus as Lord. Eternal life begins for us now, while we're living in this world, because we have fellowship with the Father through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is, an, is a taste of eternal life now. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we will be prosperous in all we do or that we will enjoy good health all the time, or that we will never experience grief or loss or sadness. But it does mean that in all our experiences of life, 
Jesus is there and we can fellowship with him in every aspect of our lives. Jesus is our gate. And this means that he is the one who has authority in our lives. It means that he is the only way to everlasting life and it means that he gives us an abundant life now. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus is our gate. Lord, we want to accept you as Lord and Saviour. We want to give you the authority over our lives. Lord, we accept that you are the only way to eternal life and we confess our faith in you. Remind us, O Lord, when we take back control. Remind us to seek you in all that we do and to place you at the centre of our lives. Remind us, Lord, of the abundant life that you give us. And help us, Lord, to enter into that abundance in every aspect of our lives, whether things are going well or things are not going so well. Help us, Lord, to experience that deep love of fellowship that can only come from you and the peace that surpasses all understanding in allowing you to be our shepherd. We give you permission, O Lord, to direct us. Thank you, Lord, and may we honour you in all we do. Amen.